Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by Panavision, the industry's leading end-to-end global provider of proprietary camera and lighting systems, unparalleled optics, innovative solutions, and state-of-the-art post-production services. I'm Dave Williams, Associate Publisher of American Cinematographer. Today we're speaking to M. David Mullen, ASC, about his work in the award-winning series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Immediately after graduating the master's program at CalArts, David started shooting independent features in 1991. His early influences were Vittorio Storaro, ASC, AIC, for his use of color symbolism and color photography in Technicolor movies, as well as the work of Jeffrey Unsworth, BSC, and Vilmos Zygmunt, ASC, HSC, for their use of diffusion. After spending most of the 1990s shooting non-union, straight-to-video genre movies, David started focusing on art house fare aimed at film festivals. His 13th feature film, the quirky indie drama Twin Falls, Idaho, directed by Michael Polish, gained acclaim at the Sundance Film Festival in 1999 and was released theatrically that year. David earned an Independent Spirit Award nomination for his camera work and was able to secure an agent. In 2001, he shot the first 24p HD digital movie to be released in theaters, entitled Jackpot, also directed by Polish. David's next collaboration with Polish, the stylized drama North Fork, was released in 2003, and Mullen was not only able to finally join the Camera Guild, but invited to join the ASC in 2004. He also received his second Spirit Award nomination. In 2006, David started to work in television when he was hired to shoot the second season of the HBO series Big Love. After this, he started shooting pilots for series including The Good Wife, Designated Survivor, and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. David's other television credits include United States of Terra, Smash, Extant, Get Shorty, and second unit work on the first season of Westworld, as well as additional photography plus an entire episode in season two. His feature credits also include Aquila and the Bee, The Astronaut Farmer, Assassination of a High School President, Jennifer's Body, Stay Cool, Big Sur, and The Love Witch. The following discussion took place at the American Cinematographer offices just before Christmas. Well, David, thank you so much for coming in today, just before the holidays, and we're here to talk about your wonderful work in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Let's backtrack a little bit and talk about how you became initially involved in the project with season one. And how did this come to you? I got a call from the uh, the creator of the show, Amy Sherman Palladino. Uh, I had been recommended by a director I work with named Jamie Babbitt, who had done uh, several television episodes and a feature with. And uh, she had recommended me uh, to Amy for the Netflix reboot of um, the Gilmore Girls, uh, which I didn't do. But uh, they called me again to interview for the pilot for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So I actually met with Amy and Dan, her husband, and uh, they offered me the job. So I did the pilot uh, in the fall, and then we did the series starting the next spring, basically, season one. So there was a couple months in between the the pilot and this season, which is interesting because the pilot was shot in October, November-ish, but the series has always been shot now from March to September. So... 
we never get to shoot in the fall for the series, but with the pilot itself was shot in the fall. Uh, so I did the pilot uh, in New York, and uh, then they, we went into series uh, that spring. Well, tell me a little bit about shooting the pilot. What was the initial visual direction suggested by the script, and what were your inspirations? When we discussed the script, uh, I think Dan and Amy wanted to make clear that they didn't want a kind of faded period look. And the show had to have a certain amount of energy to the camera. So they wanted to be very lively and energetic and optimistic and positive in a way visually. Uh, that was, I think, uh, the main thrust of our discussions was was not to do any kind of faded looking uh, period look. They didn't want it all to be sepia-ish or, or golden. Uh, they wanted uh, contrasting colors. Uh, they wanted to have a certain pop, basically. And uh, we discussed some references like uh it varied we discussed like Woody Allen's movies because they're dramas set in New York and real apartments and we were shooting the pilot in, in real locations we didn't build any sets other than uh Susie's tiny little apartment set we had to build because it was literally the size of a closet um but other than that uh, it was all location work for the pilot and Woody Allen's films are shot on location in real apartments um I looked at Hannah and her sisters because Amy felt the actors looked very nice in that film, and yet it had a realistic quality to it. Um, and so that was sort of my clue about how they wanted to approach the pilot, which was realistic but uh, attractive for the cast. And uh, the other discussions was about the settings because there was the storyline clearly involved someone in the Upper West Side going downtown uh, to Greenwich Village, and her husband works in Midtown in the in the offices. And so there are these kind of worlds the characters inhabit, and they needed to have distinct visual quality. So it kind of worked uh, backwards from Greenwich Village and how we wanted to approach that, which was a lot of color and warmth and energy. And that sort of determined that maybe the office scene should be very uh, cool and gray and uh, a little colder and, and more modernist. Uh, and then the Upper West Side apartment was location, which is kind of a pre-war apartment. And I think even though the story is set in the late 50s, and there's a kind of what I call industrial optimism to a lot of design elements of the 50s, modernist touches, a lot of people in New York live in pre-war apartments and even drive pre-war cars, and, and some of them wear older clothing, like her father, who's a college professor. So there's these different worlds in New York in that time period that it's not strictly the 50s. There's sometimes a 40s or a 30s or even earlier uh, look to some of the locations. And so we just tried to, tried to enhance or bring out those different qualities of, of life in New York at the time through color and, and light. Well, uh, the, you mentioned the, um, the office scenes in sort of Midtown um, and they have that sort of modernist look. And then I you know immediately because I was a huge fan of course uh, thought of Mad Men and had a similar sort of sort of look to it. Um, was there you know any DNA from your experience in shooting an episode of that? Uh, yes, I I, I think uh, it might have seeped into my own uh, thinking, but um, Mad Men is was a bit more stylized in the sense of trying to be modernist uh, for uh, symbolic reasons for the story. I think. Um, this wasn't uh, about that so much, so um, we weren't trying to be uh, quite so formalistic about the visual style, I guess. Um, uh, formal, I meant. Um, 
But I, I certainly thought about it when I was doing those office scenes. Um, it was very limited because it was a real location with real views out the windows. So there's no uh, design in terms of lighting. Uh, we just went with available light, fluorescence, and and natural light through the windows. Uh, our main concern was mainly every time we go outside, out looking out windows, is what buildings in the background are are post 1959, and whether the audience would notice that and things like that. So what's surprising is a lot of the Midtown area, those those modern buildings were built around that period. So what looks to our eyes is seeming like it must be from the 80s is actually some of them were built in the late 50s. Um, we actually tried to shoot the exterior at the Seagram's building that Mears van der Rohe designed, but they wouldn't give us permission to film in front of there. So we actually filmed about two blocks uh, from that building on Park Avenue uh, for when they get out of the building and get into the cab and visual effects had to help us out a little bit because in the background of park avenue is the old uh what used to be called the uh, new york central building is now called the helmsley building but behind it towers the pan am building which is now the metlife building that was built in like 1960 or something so in theory it would have been under construction in our background we just had we just erased it because um uh it was night scene anyway um but that was some of the issues. And even on our exterior, we had to erase like a modern bank uh, logo and, and other things were on our office building. Well, that's a, in watching the show too, that's a clearly a distinct advantage that you guys had you know, in, a, in a visual way to, in comparison to what they were dealing with on Mad Men in that you're shooting in, Los, or in, in New York as opposed to faking New York and Los Angeles and being able to bring in all of that exterior work. Yeah, it's in fact that was some bone of contention. Amazon had just done uh, Good Girls Revolt, which is set in New York and was filmed in L.A., and they uh, wanted us to shoot um, our show like that. And uh, the creators were very adamant about shooting it in New York because they felt there would be a lot of, not I wouldn't say free production value, but there would be a certain texture and and feeling of the streets in New York that just can't be faked easily in Los Angeles. There's only one or two downtown streets and everyone uses them. Um, and our story goes, ranges all up and down the island of Manhattan. So it's been very hard to find locations uh, in LA to fake for, for Manhattan. And uh, the one issue I have to deal with though is that the street lighting at night is completely modern in New York. It's a mix of uh, sodium vapor from the 80s and now LED lighting. And in New York in the 50s, it would all have been tungsten street lighting. So I've had to either embrace the colors in the background that aren't strictly realistic or replace them with white lighting so that it feels more correct for the period. In case of Park Avenue, it's all lit with cool LED lighting now. And because I wanted the office scenes to have a kind of cold modernist feeling, I just sort of went with that daylight balance I color corrected it a little towards the gray and neutral, but I let those streets feel kind of crisp and cold. So when they get in the cab and drive off and then they enter um, Greenwich Village, which the, is lit with sodium street lighting in the background. So I have this orangey street lights in the background and then I lit the street with white tungsten with a little bit of warmth on them. Um, so you have this color contrast that, that comes naturally actually with the real street lighting in New York right now. It's not strictly realistic, but emotionally it works for the story. So I sort of went with it. Yeah, I remember talking with uh, Maddie Libatique about shooting uh, straight out of Compton. And he had a similar problem with Los Angeles in that all the street lighting has, or a lot of the street lighting has been changed over to LEDs. It no longer has that yellowish sodium vapor 
sort of look. And yeah. so he was trying to replicate that feel from the 1980s for that picture. When you're shooting on location, especially for something, period, is working with the existing lighting always the primary concern? Or what other challenges are, are you faced with uh, on an ongoing basis? We're faced with partly um, just how many, if we're on the street at night or daytime, how many storefronts can we change out with production design? And what have, do we have to frame out and what can visual effects paint out? Because we don't have a limitless budget for that. Uh, and often our scouts tend to be, where are we looking, where aren't we looking, and what can we hide with a bus or a truck or other tall vehicle to, to hide a store that we can't change? Uh, what can be blocked with other things? And then what will have to be painted out. Um, generally, if it's above the actors' heads, like on the second or third floor, it's not so hard for visual effects to change out something. It's all the street-level stores and signage that becomes a problem. And then on top of that, uh, a lot of, like a lot of cities, the first floor is often retail and the upper floors are, are residents. So it's often the first floor that's been the most changed to modern uh, signage. And there can be a lot of... Um, LED uh, display lighting that has to be turned off or replaced. Um, that's that's often the issue. We have to look at every store, and I'll have to say that light bulb, if we can switch out that light bulb and this light bulb. There's a lot of compact fluorescents after have to be switched out to tungsten. And, uh, and then art department might bring in neon or other period practicals uh, to help. So that that's a, a big issue is, is just... Uh, can I use the existing light? Um, do I have to turn it off? Do I have to replace it? Um, how can I replace it? Things like that. And then there's additional problem in New York with the street parking and uh, condor placement and other things. You know, can I put a big crane down the street? Uh, where can I put it? Um, you know, things like that. Often I don't necessarily want a big backlight on the street for the scene. I'd rather have more pools of overhead street lighting. But then that requires either getting permission to put lights on rooftops or out windows, and, and often the owners are hit and miss on that. So I may, they might get told that this apartment will let you go on their fire escape with a light, but the next one won't, and that'll kind of end up determining where and I, I can have light coming from and where I can't and whether I need to bring in a scissor lift instead or, or other things. But it's just, a, it's just a constant issue, you know. Is that uh, in part... Uh at the mercy of the persuasiveness of a, a crew member and uh, maybe how much uh, it's going to cost right up front to get people to sort of. There's the cost issue. How many, how many businesses do we have to pay or, um, and there can be just uh, logistical issues of is the rooftop safe to be on or is this fire escape strong enough for a light? Um, a lot of times owners aren't reachable, you know, we're shooting in a week and the guy is out of town and we just can't, get into that building or that window, uh, it's, it requires me to be fairly flexible. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll light with pools of street light using uh, a condor or a, or a scissor lift with an arm on it, but then the trouble is that we get into a lot of 180-degree, 360-degree Steadicam moves, and either I have to frame out that condor or uh, hope visual effects can paint it out if it's far enough in the background. Um, the last episode of the first season had a uh, snowing scene on the streets in Greenwich Village, and I wanted kind of a cool moonlit um, backlight on the streets. And the end of the block was too far to get a tall enough condor, really, to, to light the whole street. So 
So halfway down the street, I had to put a scissor lift. And during the scene, uh, which was a fight scene that we shot on a movie, we ended up going so low angle that the camera ended up looking straight up at the scissor lift and the light on it. And luckily, visual effects was able to erase the scissor lift and turn the light into a moon in the sky. So I get a lot of nice compliments about this beautiful full moon lighting the street, um, which that was just merely a our visual effects supervisor figuring out what she could do with a big bright light that was hanging in the middle of the sky there. That sounds like a, a happy accident meets uh, some real technical finesse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, well, tell me a little bit about, you know, the importance of your collaboration with production design. I guess that's Bill Groom and uh, art direction, Neil Prince mm-hmm. and set decoration, set decoration, Eileen Christensen mm-hmm. and costume, uh, Donna, I know I'll butcher her name. Zoka Zarkowska. 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 Uh, and I think it's Ellen Christensen. Um, uh, yeah, Ellen Christensen. She's, yeah, she's uh, a, uh, our set decorator. Gotcha, gotcha. Yes. Um, yes, I work very closely with the uh, art department, uh, particularly on new sets being constructed, being locations too. Because we move the camera so much, it really is necessary that the sets be semi-self-lit and... Uh, even Bill Groom prefers it that way because he feels that the sets look more believable when they're, the lighting is coming from actual sources in the, in the shot. So um, the most elaborate thing we had to do was when we went into the Williamsburg Arts Center and turned it into the B. Altman uh, makeup counter uh, floor because Bill wanted us to be able to shoot 360 and ceiling to floor. So my plan to uh, span the ceiling with pipes and, and rig some sort of soft boxes up there uh, wasn't going to work. So he, there's four giant columns in that location and he wrapped them with a kind of giant art deco chandelier fixture that uh, has um, quasar tubes on a dimmer board inside them. So we were able to dim and switch them from daylight to tungsten. And it was, it's, it was a great system, but it was quite elaborate. Every Every column has this giant light on it, basically, that the art department built. And then the countertops themselves had to have a LED hidden LED lighting to light the products and the counters. I needed to go LED because um, I needed to be able to change the color temperature depending on whether you're doing a night scene or a day scene in there. Um, and also I think a lot of tungsten lighting would have been too hot in those period cou- counters they had found. They're actually from the period, all the display counters. Well, for the for the pilot, were you what kind of pre-production did you have? Did, were you able to do tests on a lot of these kinds of things on costume and makeup and and everything? Did you, did you have that that kind of opportunity? I think we did uh, some hair and makeup tests with uh, still cameras, um, and maybe with the Alexa, uh, we did one wig test uh, for for Midge. That was a big concern. Other than that, um, my test and pre-production were mainly about the filtration, uh, just to pick the right level of diffusion because we were finishing in uh, 4K UHD but shooting 3.2K on the Alexa. And so to find the right amount of diffusion that would look good in HD and look good in 4K. Um, and Amy and Dan had used a, a certain filter on the Netflix uh Gilmore Girls, and, but that was a Sony F55 production for Netflix and 4K. and But we ended up with the same filtration, but I tested a dozen other filters too, different levels of fogginess versus no fogginess versus other things just to get the tone right. So did using different focal lengths uh, impact your your how you were setting up your filtration as well? 
For the most part, I'd say 80% of the show is shot on the same filter, which is a quarter uh, Schneider Hollywood black magic filter. Um, we don't vary the focal lengths a whole lot. So that issue of having to go to like a 200 mil versus uh, a 24 mil doesn't come up very often. Most of the show is shot within a very limited range because of all the camera movement. It's often a 24 mil primo on the steady cam, maybe a 30 mil for singles, sometimes a 35. We rarely even go to a 50 mil for, for coverage. The only time we get into longer lenses is when we run multiple cameras during the nightclub acts, the comedy show acts, and we have to record a performance. In that case, I do have to lighten up the diffusion. Sometimes I go to an eighth Hollywood black magic instead of the quarter because through on a longer lens towards in a smoked room, it just can look too heavy. Um, because the lens will compress yeah, all of that smoke together. Yeah. yeah, you lose contrast, you lose sharpness. It's interesting, even in a medium shot, how the smoke not only lowers contrast, but seems to lower sharpness. So the focus actually looks like it's off or slightly softer. So I have to watch that and pull back on the filters if I, otherwise I could, things can look too mushy, even though she's often in a hard spotlight, which gets tricky because then I go even tighter. The hard key light from the follow spot looks so sharp that then I feel like I need to go back to the heavier diffusion. And then I put the heavier on and it looks too heavy. So it's, it's, it's a tricky thing sometimes with these smoked rooms and these longer lenses. That's the only time. I have an issue. The other reason we don't use it 100% of the time is that the uh, Hollywood Black Magic is a combination filter of an eighth black frost, which gives you a little bit of the glow around lights, but also a HD Classic Soft, which has little sort of dimples in the glass to create the diffusion, the softening. But those dimples also create a little halation around the light. And together, when you have a bright light bulb or a bright, bright window in the frame, you can get this kind of fringing, glowing edge to things that can be distracting if it's right behind an actor's head. So when we get in those situations, I have to switch to a Tiffin uh, black diffusion effects filter, which is softens the image but doesn't have any halation. So I keep the level of softness the same, but I don't get distracting glows around around a lamp or something. I had to do that in the opening shot for season two when we camera moves along these women at these switchboards because we had a row of light bulbs installed to light their faces and with the hollowed black magic each light bulb was distractingly haloing around uh, their faces so i had to switch to the black diffusion effects the subject of stand-up comedy seems like it would be a pretty difficult one from a visual standpoint as you're invariably uh, you have a, a person on stage often with a spotlight on them a microphone delivering uh, a few pages of uh, dialogue. Did you see it that way? And, you know, what was that a creative hurdle and how was it overcome? Well, uh, I've had other movies where I've dealt with people at microphones. I did a spelling bee movie called The Keel and the Bee and Smash often had people in nightclubs singing in, in a follow spot. Um, sometimes you can vary it by club, by the colored lighting in the background and backlights and other things uh, around them. And we looked at the movie Lenny, which has a lot of interesting angles. Uh, the most interesting is often when you're behind the back of the performer and their silhouette against the spotlight beam. But you can only do that a few times before it, it gets uh, repetitive. I don't know if there's a solution to it other than to each club having its own look. Um, but the follow spot is sort of a signature element of the show, um, Often when we get into a new scene, I'll ask, you know, do we have a follow spot or is there just standard stage lighting? Because some 
shows don't do a follow spot. They they just do a sort of general stage lighting for a stage. But generally, we go with a follow spot. Um, one of the issues I did bring up in pre-production was I was looking at the movie uh, Inside Lewin Davis, and they vary their um, gaslight scenes by whether there's a soft overhead key light or a hard spotlight. They didn't use a uh, follow spot. They used the tungsten par can as a strong uh, spotlight uh, for some of the performances in that movie. But the rest were shot with a big soft box over the stage, which isn't necessarily realistic, but is very attractive and, and has a very soft glow on the skin. And um, so I was wondering whether we should try to do that. And it so far hasn't come up very often. We've almost always had a hard spotlight. Uh, I did have a scene where in the gaslight where some people were auditioning uh, on stage uh, while a dialogue scene was going on. And I felt like there wouldn't be a follow spot operator working in a situation like that. They would just turn on a light over the stage. So I put a little soft box over the stage uh, hidden in the rafters for that shot. But that's like almost the only time I've been able to not go with a hard spotlight. We had some club scenes where she's lit with a par can instead of a Lico type. Uh, spotlight, which is a slightly different look. You don't get the circle effect on the curtain wall and things it's like that. It's not nearly as crisp. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about working on location, but how involved are you in the location scout or the selection of locations in order to create these contrasts between all these different clubs and things like that? I'm the There's initial pass of location scouting just between the uh, our locations manager and our production designer. He likes to sort of filter things out and pick things that he thinks can work design-wise. And then at that point, I'm usually brought in uh, to look at it from from a photographic point of view, uh, what are some of the issues. And sometimes what happens, though, is you lose a location. You know, they say, we've got this great venue for to do this big dance scene, and then suddenly it's it's no longer available, and we have to scout all over again. And that can be a little more, you know, scouting on the fly, literally just going to places and all looking at it together. But but generally the process is that is the production designer picks the locations he feels works and then then I go check them out um and then and I have to look at it from what's doable for lighting purposes we had a um recreation of the Copacabana nightclub in the first season that was a dance hall uh in Brooklyn that had uh a second floor balcony that wrapped around in kind of a U shape around a, a dance floor. And that, and when I went in there, I, I, my questions was, uh, will we see the second floor and do we need to dress it? And if not, can I use it as a lighting platform, which I was able to. So along the balcony edge, I put a series of park hands and was able to light a lot from there. And then I floated a lighting balloon over the top of the whole room. Tell me a little bit about your collaboration with the other cinematographer on the show. Is it Eric Moynier? Moynier. Moynier. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, we alternate on episodes, uh, on the first season I did the pilot and then I was shooting Get Shorty when they, uh, started the season. So Eric started, uh, shooting the first two episodes, uh, in season one. Uh, and then I came in on what was episode four, but the third one to go in production after the pilot counts as episode one. Uh, so Eric had to match, uh, the pilot. And in fact, episode two begins episode. The pilot ends with Midge standing alone in the police station, having said goodbye to Lenny Bruce. 
episode two begins with Lenny Bruce coming right back in the door. He left and, and talking some more. So, so this episode begins with exactly where we left off on the pilot and, but shot, you know, four months later. So, uh, we had to not only match hair and makeup, but Eric had to match my lighting exactly. Uh, and luckily I had just started, I just finished Get Shorty and I'd shown up on the first day of shooting of the season. So I was able to visit the set and sort of um, okay that, you know, the, how the approach was to matching what I did on that location. Um, but we have a sort of set of ground rules for about the look that in terms of the naturalistic base lighting from practical sources when possible. And then, and then how the actors are, you know, uh, handled. I think where we have to collaborate the most because often most scripts are a mix of one-off locations. So he'll go to a, a restaurant that I'll never get to go to or vice versa. But there are a few new sets that show up um, over the course of a year, like uh, a loft set or an apartment set or, or, or the B. Altman department store that came along later in the season. That's where he and I have to collaborate on the rigging because we don't sure what will be written for those locations, you know, but we know they'll have to be pre-rigged for day and night and be able to create different moods within that. So we'll have to uh, agree on the sort of approach, you know, um, basically in terms of color temperature and, and, and other types of practicals that are going to be installed. Well, the first season was a massive success. Um, I mean, incredible reviews, and obviously it won a, a, a huge number of Emmys, and um, you earned your first Emmy nomination for, this, for, the, for the pilot. Um, what was that like, you know, just having you know, this project embraced the way it was? It's great. It's always great when a lot of people are watching what you're shooting and getting excited about it on, online and in person. Uh, it's a show that people enjoy and, and warm up to. So it's something I, my parents can watch. It's something that a lot of family and friends, uh, like to watch, you know, they're not watching it just because I shot it. They're watching it because they actually want to watch it. Um, so it's, it's great to be part of something successful and, and fun and enjoyable. Well, after shooting the pilot and, uh, the time between doing that and doing your first episode, were there things that you sort of reformulated in your mind or things you reconsidered based on the initial experience of shooting the pilot? Well, there's there's certain things that got refined um, from the pilot. And then there's certain things we had to deal with. The pilot was all shot on location. But the a large part of the show takes place in the Weissman apartment sets, which were recreated for the series. And that was a mental change because I went from having a lot of natural daylight in that uh, space to having to recreate it artificially on a soundstage. Um, but the set was built more or less exactly to match the original locations and uh, practicals were added and the ceilings are, are mostly solid and we can remove them if we need to, but we shoot it like a location. But it was just outside the windows. I had to sort of cre recreate the daylight that we would have uh, and be able to do more looks than the pilot had to do, you know, from dusk to moonlight to to daylight and sunset and things like that. So that was a challenge uh, to keep it looking natural, but on a stage. Uh, and when I showed up in episode four, the set had first been built as Midge's apartment. And because Midge lived two floors below her parents, the two apartments had identical footprints. So essentially they built one set, dressed it as Midge's apartment. And then in episode four, she moves out 
and into her parents' apartment. So that got redressed as the parents' apartment. So we couldn't shoot any parents' apartment scenes for episodes two and three until it had been turned into their apartment. So they had to go back and, and pick up those scenes from Abe Weissman's apartment that were owed from episodes two and three once they converted Midge's apartment. But I did the montage sequence in episode four where she moves out of her apartment and it ends with her standing in an empty apartment. And that was a very complicated shot because we did a 360 steady camera move around her at night during a party scene and it morphs while we're circling her into her daytime move empty apartment where she's left all alone and we pull back and reveal that the room is empty. Um, which was a very difficult shot to pull off. Um, but then when she's finally standing alone, the room is empty. All the curtains have been pulled off the window. So now we're in this room where we're looking straight at our backing and I'm having to recreate natural light in there with nothing to hide anything. I had I had to hope that the backing... How far back was the backing? <laughs> the backing had a, was a good distance, like um, 10, 15 feet away. And it's a big backing. Um, but it just, we'd never looked at it clearly enough because it always had curtain shears, uh, over the windows. And now we're looking straight at it. Luckily it was a very realistic backing and actually it is the actual view from her apartment building, uh, of the Hudson, of the Hudson river. So up in the upper West side along Riverside park. So it worked out, but I was a little nervous when I pulled all the curtains off that how it was going to look, but that was the one adjustment from the pilot. The other was just when we got our uh, Steadicam operator, Jim McConkie, who didn't do the pilot, um, we had some very complex camera moves throughout the course of the show, and, and Jim has worked out a very precise way of shooting. He uses what they call a wave, which is a, a device that the camera sits on on top of the Steadicam that constantly keeps the horizon level level. So he doesn't have to think about horizon as he's taking sharp turns around corners. Often Steadicams do a kind of Dutch float tilt as they take turns because of the inertia of the camera. So you get this kind of uh, banking kind of tilting motion and, and that the wave eliminates that. So we get very precise moves down halls. And then Jim's very good about stopping and holding the camera very still during long dialogue scenes after the move is over. So there's a lot of very ambitious Steadicam operating on this series. And, and Jim has developed a very precise style to shoot that with. Uh, that's carried over into our coverage after that. That's why we've ended up with a 30 mil lens for our singles because we didn't have, on the pilot, we only had a 21 and a 27. And we we're constantly fighting whether to do the moving shots on the 21 or the 27. But luckily we found a 24 mil lens for the series that's become our main lens on the Steadicam. But then when we go into close-ups, our close-ups are like often only waist up or elbow up size. They don't get any tighter than that. But Amy wants the close-ups to be clean. She doesn't necessarily want over-the-shoulder shots, um, which means we sort of have to be inside the foreground person, which means being up closer with the camera so that we don't feel we're missing the foreground, uh, the person she's talking to. And a 27 gets a little bit too wide-angle feeling when you get that tight. And a 35 requires us to back up so far that uh, the foreground actor is either cheated way back and that feels odd or they're, or um, it just feels like they're missing in the frame. So the 30 worked out to be the perfect focal length for that kind of shot. Um, and that's all Jim and I sort of working out what feels right um, for these, these setups, but it's 
it's uh, something that's refined basically and evolved over the course of the first season. And these are all Primo lenses we're talking about, Panavision Primos. Yes. And how did you, in, uh, you know, initially determine to use the Primos because, you know, there's all these trends going on right now with using vintage lenses to shoot period pictures and things like that. But, you know, the Primos have a very contemporary sort of crisp look to them. Was that yeah. part of that edict to make this look contemporary but shot in the 1950s? Yes, I. it's partly that every time I've gone to New York, I've almost always ended up with a Panavision package. And Panavision New York is, is very popular there. They're a very good rental house. They're very friendly. And a lot of producers in New York like them. Uh, I did smash with the Panavision uh, camera package. Um, a lot of my features in New York are from Panavision. So that kind of meant using Primo lenses or using their older lenses, their Z-series Zeiss lenses or their ultra speeds, which are a mix of elements. Their ultra speeds have been rehoused as the P-Vintage lenses and they're so popular that they're near impossible to rent everyone seems to be renting them so to get a set of lenses for a whole series uh you know eric when he came on board asked me if i wanted to consider uh, vintage lenses um but the problem is not only do they not want to kind of faded look um but uh while the softness of the older lenses and occasionally the flaring might be fun we do so much camera movement where we end up with a bright window or a lamp near someone that we can't frame out or, and I just didn't want to deal with flares that would be distracting or having to carry both a, a set of lenses that didn't flare and, and a set of lenses that did. That that would probably be the ideal situation, but it just was too much equipment to, to have to deal with. And I need something that's consistent basically. And, and the fact I was using diffusion gave me enough halation that I didn't feel the lenses had to be creating it too. Um, there was a flashback sequence that I was tempted to go shoot on um, vintage lenses that ended up being cut from before we even got to shoot it. But it was something I was considering because they wanted a different look for this one sequence that was scripted once. Uh, and it may, so it may come up again next season, you know, uh, we may, try experiment with a different lens for a flashback sequence or something but otherwise the primos seem to be able to do everything we needed to do and you completely carried sort of that over into season two yeah the same so primos and then ingenues for for longer ones no we carried extra zooms in the first season we ended up dropping them almost all of them because we rarely put a zoom on other than the performance scenes so we carry a you know, the 11 to 1 Primo Zoom and the shorter 19 to 90 uh, Primo Zoom. But we also were carrying some lightweight Ingenue Zooms for the Steadicam, but we almost rarely use them. And just to get, in order to gain more prime lenses, I sort of sent back the, uh, the Ingenue lightweight Zooms, basically. So by the second season, it was, we instead we doubled up on our 24, 30, 40, you know, all our, our short focal lengths so that I wouldn't have to decide whether B camera, you know, when we did use B camera, if I had to use a different focal length or I could put them both on the same focal length. Um, well, let's, uh, let's get into a little bit about season two. And I remember us talking, we were talking, you and I were having a discussion about something else. And you told me you're on, you're going to be soon on your way to Paris to shoot. Um, some episodes for season two. And I was like, Paris, what's going on with that? Um, tell me a little bit about how the show really expanded in season two with, with doing this. And I have to imagine it was incredibly exciting to 
to, you know, go on location and bring this whole other world into this story. Yeah, I mean, I was very excited to go to Paris. I've always wanted to shoot in Europe. And generally, most of the projects I've ever been involved with, uh, if they go to Europe, they hire a European uh, cinematographer. Um, so I've actually never shot in Europe before, other than I did an independent film in Russia back in 2001 for three weeks. And I did a short uh, project with Michael Polish in London uh, with some camera tests and a music video and some other little things we did there. But other than that, I've, I haven't been able to shoot in Europe until now. And it was, it was, so it was great to go to Paris and be doing period in Paris, uh, which of course creates the same problems doing period in New, as like in New York, but it's a little less of a problem in Paris because the, the architecturally they they retain so much of their classic look that uh, I, the only thing I had to really deal with was um, the sodium streetlights that Paris has. But uh and that was, and then the second half of the season, we go to um, the Catskills, so we have a whole different look there. And I think people have said the second season was more colorful um, than the first season. I think it's mainly just because going to having summer in the story and having these floral print dresses and these blue skies and these lakes and green trees up in the Catskills brought a, and the light of summer sort of brought more color and light into the show just by the nature of the of the summertime setting. Was there sort of a distinct visual look that you wanted to bring to Paris to make it very distinct from New York? Because there is, uh, after the first episode, there's some cross-cutting between what's going on with um, her parents and what's going on in New York. Yeah. I think uh, when you get to Paris, there's a certain um, tone to the city because there's a lot of uh, stone buildings and things that are all kind of in a tan uh color scheme and there's a lot of sodium street lighting nights so it's a very warm look at night so my question first was whether the day scenes in paris because it's set in february and it's still a bit cold should i go with a cold look or a warm look and i felt like a cold look would be fighting the architecture and and everything else there in paris so feeling that paris would end up being on the warm side uh i consciously made the new york scenes in the early episodes colder like we have a scene where Susie gets kidnapped and and she gets walked out to this pier and we shot it at twilight and I went with a very blue dusk look knowing that that would be intercut with a very warm Paris scene uh, just so that the New York would feel more wintry and cold and Paris would feel more golden. Uh, and then they added more color into the Paris scene so it wouldn't be too brownish. You know, they we had a besides the wardrobe we put storefronts and and even post-production added some more color signage in the background so there wasn't it didn't get too monochromatic in the paris sequence um, but paris has a distinct look and i just sort of had to go with that that warmth basically uh and then contrast that with new york as best i could there's a there's a there's a wonderful scene in that in that uh, first episode from season two where Midge uh, is following her mother down this cobblestone street at night and there's you know it's a sort of a lively sort of nightclubby sort of bar type type street. Um, tell me a little bit about how did you guys shoot that? How did you guys like that? What how much did you add to it in order to give it that you know that look? I didn't have to do too much with that street actually because it is a street full of bars full of neon signs and things. We just had to turn off the obvious modern signage, uh, any LED strip lighting in store windows and things like that, unless it was so far down the street and out of focus that it was just a bit of color. We wetted down the cobblestones to get more reflections from these uh, stores in the background. 
Um, so I really just had to light the foreground. Um, and that again got required me to get permission to get in some people's apartment windows and arm out some park hands on, on poles to backlight or cross light them. Uh, and then the coverage, I was able to light them with lights on stands, but, um, but most of the background is just the, uh, the lighting that was there. We did actually turn off some of it because it was actually more brightly lit with lots of sodium street lights up and down the alleyway. And I had them turn off like every other one or, or just leave two or three on. So it was more just lit by the, the neons and things. I might have had a very, very deep, deep light at the far end of the alley just to rake the, the buildings a little bit um, around the corner, but it didn't really add a whole lot um, to the, the lighting. Mostly it was just about lighting the actors and that is the background. Well, I remember this just I mean, in, in, the, in the scene, there's this fantastic, you know, really wide shot that's fairly far away from them and they're in silhouette and all the, you know, this, wonderful sort of Parisian view is behind them with the co mm -hmm. wet cobblestones. It's yeah. really beautiful. I almost couldn't not have a silhouette because I could light them in the foreground as if they're lit from the uh, restaurant that they would come out of. But then right past that, it was a bunch of closed stalled uh, garages and, and apartments. And we, there was nowhere to hide any lights. Um, there was the, there was no hidden nooks and crannies. So when she, the mother walks away, Rose walks away. She immediately goes in the silhouette because I there's nowhere to put a light on her at that moment, so that it looked nice against the cobblestone. So I just sort of went with it. Well, as the scene continues, uh, Midge follows her into this sort of tiny cabaret, mm -hmm. and uh, it ends up being uh, this this nightclub where there's a a drag show going on, mm -hmm. and and there's this wonderful sense of atmosphere and of really having this lively, uh, you know, performance and and a raucous audience. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about about how you like to set like the atmosphere in like a club scene like that. We often uh, smoke our club scenes, which is actually realistic for the time because everyone's smoking in the scenes too. Uh, that shot was difficult because we start out in the street. Um, we follow her down the street. She looks in the door. We go through the door with her. She, we follow her all the way into the center of the room. And then she looks up and sees the second floor balcony. And we spin uh, three, you know, 180 degrees and land back on her face so it ends up being goes from street to inside and then and then sees the entire room floor to ceiling three hundred sixty degrees so all the lighting in the scene is in the shot basically um and it's a real uh the real place Madame Arthur's so it has this tiny tiny stage with a very low ceiling and so the problem I had was just how to light the stage space because they had put over the years just some cheap uh led club lighting in in that space which didn't work at all so i had to rig some tiny uh tungsten lights as backlights uh on a there was a little bit of a black rail that they'd use for their led power strip that i was able to rig off of and put some small uh tungsten fresnels in in the back wall and then hid a, a light tube in this low ceiling and then light her from the second floor balcony with with some spotlights. Um, but, uh, it's, it was a very tight space The I went with, um, a mix of pink and blue, uh, backlights on her. It's something that I picked up from Michael Mayer, who was a director on smash. who's a Broadway theater director. And we had our, one of our first small nightclub scenes in that first episode of smash that I did. And he said, uh, when in doubt, uh, just light with pink and blue. And I was like, oh, okay. And, uh, it, turned out to it does work because you can cross fade pink to blue and, and create 
two different looks and and when they mix together you kind of get white on faces and uh it's a very pretty color so that's that's how i lit the uh the club there later in the same episode i believe it is there's this wonderful scene where abe and rose are dancing on on the, in this sort of uh square or something uh on the scene with um mm-hmm. notre dame in the background yeah and it's a beautiful magical scene and tell me a little bit about sort of how that took place that was in the second episode after Midge has left her parents behind in Paris and she's back in New York. Um, and it wasn't, it was a single shot sequence, but Amy didn't necessarily say it had to be a single shot. She just tends to like things not to cut and do it all in one move. But the trouble here was that she said, I want, I want to look through dancers that are out of focus and have it kind of dreamlike and then reveal that more and more and more dancers in the frame. So I told her, well, that implies that the first part of it has to be a long lens shot because you want to compress the space and have the dancers out of focus in the foreground and background. But then when we pull back and see everyone on the scene and see the Notre Dame in the background, that implies a wide angle shot. So, But it's a night exterior. And I, I said, well, ideally that would be a zoom shot, but the Notre Dame is lit to a very dim level at night. Um and I don't want to really push the Alexa past 1600 ISO if I don't have to. So at first, I, we were going to try to do it in, in two shots, basically a telephoto shot that pans Ave and Rose through the crowd and then somehow have someone dance and wipe through the frame and have that wipe allow us to cut to a looser shot. But as the more and more we tried to figure out when we would cut and go wider and wider, um, I started to realize that I needed to be able to do this in one shot in case the the wipe cut idea didn't work. So I found a, I remembered that there was a T2 zoom lens that Fujinon makes. Uh, it's like an 18 to 80 zoom, I think, or something. Uh, it's very sharp and it opens up to two. So I found one uh, in Paris and basically uh, we did it all in that lens. I was able to shoot it at two. It was very hard on the focus puller because we're zoomed at 70 mils at the start of the shot and Abe and Rose break frame. So he has no idea where they'll be in the frame the moment they come into the picture, uh, the focus puller. And then and then we see them and then we start to zoom out and zoom out and zoom out. Knowing that I had to light to basically the river and the Notre Dame to be self-lit by the existing streetlights, um, I had to work at a low light level for the dancers. The trouble was I really wanted to backlight the dance but there was nowhere to put a backlight because I have the river, the Seine in the background. Notre Dame, I could have maybe put a condor on, except it's uh, the ground there uh, is historic and wouldn't take the weight of like a you know 125-foot condor or something like that. So what I ended up doing uh, was I put a condor next to the camera, armed it all the way out to the background, and then pointed lights back at itself so that the the, they essentially would backlight the dancers from the river, but the base of the condor was next to the dancers along. So it was arcing over and then pointing yeah, back. Yeah, right. Um, and I put two 10Ks with Chimera bags on them to, to sort of backlight the dancers. But then I had to, in the last minute, sort of along the s- sidewalks, uh, put some more lights to, to sort of etch out the bridge and and further up the uh, the walkway of the Seine and, and so we had scattered lights up and down to bring out things in the darkness. Even at 1600 ISO, it wasn't quite enough to see everything I needed to see in that shot. And then 
I ended up using like a ProMist filter rather than our usual Hollywood black magic because again, normally we don't zoom out to a long lens, but on a long lens at the start of the shot, all those sodium streetlights along the river just looked very strange with a black magic filter. Um, but I wanted some glow to everything, so I switched to a ProMist filter for that shot. Well, let's let's talk about, uh, about a couple other other scenes in particular the one that you had mentioned earlier on uh it's the opening scene with the the teleports telephone switchboard at b altman where we find midge was that a practical location no the, the switchboard uh part was a set we built the challenge on that shot was that it looks like a single shot that starts in the uh makeup counter room follows someone with a letter and they put the letter in a mail slot and the camera dives into the mail slot and comes out the basement end of it and then follows a mail carrier over to the switchboard room and then goes through the switchboard operators and lands on Midge and then keeps up with Midge as she slides her chair from wall to wall helping out the other switchboard operators. And Amy had said that she wanted this continuous move and she wanted the camera to keep up with Midge as she kicked off from her chair and, and, and then slid across the room. So she was worried that a steady cam wouldn't be fast enough for one thing to keep up if Midge suddenly flew towards us on the uh, on her chair. And so the first was trying to figure out what sort of camera device to do that sequence with. We kn- I knew that the connection between the B. Altman location and the switchboard location would have to be a hidden cut using the, the mail chute as the stitching together element which which is digitally created the switchboard shot we they started to build the set and the only thing that could have maybe flown around completely fast and free would have been something like a cable cam system but that would require entirely missing ceiling set and then visual effects would have to recreate all the door arches all the ceilings it would have been tremendously expensive, and I wasn't sure it would work. I was that was just that in theory it would and work. Be stuck with it. I'd be stuck with this idea that I, you know, had, but it wouldn't necessarily do the shot. So I was, I felt more comfortable trying to do it on a steady cam. But we ended up doing it as using it a movie that uh, Jim McConkey and his brother Larry McConkey had worked out. They put the movie on the end of a boom pole arm and then put that on a steady cam vest, so they were able to float the movie. Uh, in and around the, uh, the switchboard operators, the and we looked at the space and we realized the distance that she would slide across the room was was only about four or five feet because it was much smaller than you'd think. So that if we needed to speed up the move to to match her, we just had to sort of use our the steady the operator would just have to arm out with his arms and do the initial part of the pull with their arms yanking the camera and they would be able to keep up with her. So it wasn't a question about running with the camera. To match her speed, um, we could sort of match it by extending the pole out and then sucking it back in quickly. Then the, once we built the set and they rehearsed in it with these dancers playing the switchboard operators, the problem, the first question that came in, as soon as we enter the room, do we fly along the backs of the city, of the switchboard operators or do we try to fly in the gap between the, the heads and the wall of the switchboard which is the more interesting angle, but I was worried that the cables that they are reaching up and pulling out of the wall would get in the way of the camera lens, and it was there enough room to fit a movie between the wall and their faces, and there just barely was enough room if each uh, operator leaned out of the way of the camera just as it passed their noses. So we ended up going the the more difficult route, which was to try to move down the row of faces in between the wall and their noses. Um, and not have them look like they're visibly leaning out of the shot. And then once we got to Midge, 
we wrapped around her, saw the room from the other direction, which meant we'd see the whole room, ceiling, lighting, everything had to be self-lit, the set. And then we chased her to the other end of the room, and then we chased her back and forth like a ping pong ball between the two sets of consoles. And then the problem became, as the Steadicam would wrap around her, the women in the uh, chairs would have to get out of the way of the operator. But then when he wrapped back around, they'd have to be back working as if they hadn't moved at all. So all these uh, switchboard operators had to constantly get out of the way of the camera in their chairs and then slide back into position very quickly. So at the moment we would see them, they'd be back at work. And I, I lit it with uh, overhead fluorescence that I gelled kind of a blue-green color to contrast with the warmth of the makeup counter. And then we put these bare light bulbs in the switchboards to light their eyes up uh, as if they're task lights So because they often take notes while they're taking a call, so they need a little work light. Uh, and that was the easiest thing to install was a row of light bulbs. Um, so I have the warmth of the light bulbs and the coldness of the overhead fluorescence uh, contrasting that and then the built-in lighting of the switchboard panels themselves yeah. these you know red lights right and, and the only visual effect we had to do was um at some point the lights blink on and off depending on who's getting a call and they didn't always match the dialogue so visual effects had to go and change the pattern of the lights blinking at some point more calls come in more of the switchboard lights up and then they start to die down and some of them go off and and we tried to do that practically, but visual effects had to do a lot of work in post to change which light blinked on and which light blinked off. I'm sure trying to time that live on set would have been incredibly difficult. Yeah, it's existing period prop, so it's a real switchboard from the time uh, that's, I guess, been rewired. But we couldn't touch it too much because it was historical. So, yeah, that was that was the only visual effect other than the tunnel, uh, mail chute tunnel uh, gag. And we had to, in post... Right after the move was over, Midge finishes her last call and she pulls out her headphone jack out of the wall and it got stuck for like a frame before she could pull it out. And that sort of deflated a little bit of the energy of the sequence. So Amy had them take that frame out. So she pulls out the jack in one smooth motion. So there's like a hidden cut or or something in there. But otherwise, it's it's a true single shot move. On my first watching, I watched that scene a couple of different times. Mm-hmm. So I was just, it was just a fun scene to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I imme- immediately flashed on I Am Cuba. <laughs> for the, you know, as the camera just passes right in front yeah. of them, they're just slightly pulling back to look at back. Yeah, it was a wider angle lens we normally use. It's a 21 mil instead of the 24 because I wasn't sure if visual effects was going to need to stabilize or do anything to, to, to connect the two shots. Especially in the, the B. Altman section, I used the 21 mil because... We got as close as we could to the mail slot, but I knew they would have to take over at some point with a digital mail slot. And uh, I wanted them to be able to take our frame, and if they needed to zoom into it and reframe it, uh, I would frame looser with a wider angle lens. But when we got into the switchboard, it just seemed too tight with a 24, so we ended up with a 21 for that, which made it some things easier, but it made it harder for the women to get out of the frame because they would be in the frame longer before the camera passed them because of the wide angle lens. So uh, it was the timing of them leaning out of the way was, was, was down to a few, you know, just hair splitting basically. Well, I actually in, uh, after watching it, I was doing some searching around on the web and I found on Reddit, they were talking about this exact shot and someone uh, matched up the scene as it's seen in the episode with someone shot behind the scenes with an iPhone or something mm-hmm. like that. And so we can see exactly what's going on in, the, in that mm-hmm. shot. It's really fascinating to watch. And 
I'll include a link to that uh, yeah. in the podcast notes. Well, one thing we've learned over time is that the Movi is one of the smallest uh, stabilized remote heads. So we use it sometimes not as a Movi, but just on the end of an arm or a jib arm or a crane arm because I need to extend it and go through a tiny space like the gap between a head and a wall or or in season one we pull back over Midge's shoulder as she's sitting on her uh, windowsill in her bedroom so we had to actually get the camera through the window and her shoulder uh, and land over her shoulder and the only thing small enough to that gap was a movie basically so it's come in handy when we had to just go through tight tight spaces well, how has um, you know this, these new kinds of tools, whether it be the Mobi or even just smaller digital cameras or, or whatnot, uh, changed your approach to camera movement? Well, this is a particularly challenging show. So the fact the cameras are smaller and lighter and there's these devices to move them has been a tremendous uh, help um, if compared to having to use a film camera. And I think uh, the other problem we would have if we shot 35 millimeter is the fact we do such long takes. Uh, I don't think Amy would be happy with a five-minute steady cam load. You know, it just she had done the uh, Gilmore Girls in Super Sixteen, so she had ten-minute loads in her steady cam on that show. But uh, if we did thirty-five millimeter on this show, we would have been doing you know five hundred foot steady cam loads, and I don't think it would work uh, for the show. So that aspect uh, it just works a lot with her style of directing to have a camera that we don't have to cut very often and we can run very long camera takes and then and go again right away without reloading. Uh, and we don't, so far, haven't had to go to even smaller cameras than the Mini. I mean, I there are certain shots where you'd be tempted to use a GoPro kind of thing, but it just the quality level of the smaller cameras isn't really something I want to get into. It would be jarring. Uh, it, would, it would be jarring because we hold on shots for so long. If this were an action show where they, they stick a, a smaller, cheaper camera to, for, during a car accident scene, you know it's only going to be on for a few frames. But on our show, a shot will be on for a two minutes or so. So you, it really has to hold up technically. So it, it, that's why sticking to the Alexa as much as possible uh, is what we do. The only time we've not used an Alexa is occasionally visual effects go out and shoot plates on a uh, uh, Black Magic 4K, uh, the Mini Pro camera, and we did our first drone shot in season two uh, when we follow Abe's car through the Catskill Mountains. We did a, uh, a red camera on a drone for that. Well, you know, going back to uh, what we were discussing uh, about making the clubs uh, look individual, look, make them look different. Um, there was a, a particular scene where Midge gets her first sort of upscale gig as a lady comic at a, I think it was a Midtown a club somewhere. Mm-hmm. And um, she's constantly derided by the other comedians who are, you know, waiting their turn to go up on stage. But the stage has this fantastic light fixture over it that's almost like this giant, this giant shade. Was that something that was found on location, or did you guys bring yeah. that in? No, it, it was. It's a place called the Slipper Room. It's it's in the, the uh, Lower East Side, and it's a beautiful restored period room. It's all modern it's restored to look period but it's all modern elements so uh it sort of drove the production designer a little bit nuts because there was all this duct work that would been added for air conditioning that was all painted kind of gold to match the the elements in the room but it's not strictly uh period correct but the problem i had with it was i it's a beautiful room but it had no lighting for the audience essentially it had a smooth tin ceiling that was not it was a 
period looking tin ceiling but it was completely installed and smooth and shiny and there's no way to drill or stick anything to it it was a very wide room so there was no way to span it with a uh any kind of arm or anything like that um the only lighting for the audience was a few sconces along the wall but that wasn't going to light the people in the middle of the room uh and there was no lighting over the bar area either so the stage itself had uh lighting and it had a second floor balcony above it that I could put the follow spot in for the stage. The problem there was it was so high up that the follow spot angle was a little bit too steep. It was a little too overhead. Um, and when I got into close-ups, I brought it down into the room to more eye level. But otherwise, uh, the problem was just uh, doing wide shots and having any light on the audience at all. So right where the, uh, the smooth ceiling ends uh, and the uh, second floor balcony begins, there was a um, video projector of some sort installed in the ceiling and Bill Groom knew he was going to have to cover that up or remove it but it gave us one point to rig off of and he essentially used it to put a big practical lamp in the center of the room so we had this big soft sort of uh, practical that he installed which uh, created enough ambient lighting over the heads of the audience that I could go very wide and, and see them sitting there in the dark without having to do any additional lighting. And then he installed a few light bulbs over the bar uh, area where the wine glass rack was. Um, they put a few fixtures in there too. So, um, And then they hang out at the corner uh, of the stage before they go on board. And again, there was no lighting over that area either. But luckily, the stage lighting itself sort of spills onto them as they're waiting to go up. So I was able to sort of give them a little key light from the stage backlight spilling into the the wings, basically. You know, another uh, another scene. Uh, I think it was from episode five um, when they're up in the Catskills, and it's Polynesian night festivities. And there's this wonderful shot where we see the ceiling. And there's this huge array of colored Chinese lanterns in the ceiling, and it seems it's it was an interesting uh, choice. And I don't know why, but it just made me feel just instantly festive and happy. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about. What was the inspiration uh, behind that? Well, it's, it's funny. is I, I've gotten compliments for that sequence, and yet I walked on set and it had been completely covered in colored Chinese lanterns, top to bottom, I, and I didn't do any lighting at all. I was just basically, it was just all practically lit, uh, something that Bill Groom and Ellen had worked out among themselves. The problem there was that porch was originally supposed to be shot on location up in the uh, Catskills, and we had bad weather, and we couldn't go out there and shoot that scene. So we ended up moving I'm sorry, it. Sorry, between Midge and her dad. No, the scene with that scene with the Chinese lanterns was oh, was gotcha. with um, Joel and his mother gotcha. sitting yes. there. And so we uh, we were planning to shoot that on the real porch. The we had built the common room set on stage, but they had built a half scale porch out the windows. So the real porch is, let's say, uh, twelve feet deep. And their fake porch was like six feet deep or something like that. So now we had to move the scene back into New York on our stage set porch, but it was the wrong scale. So Bill had to double the width of the porch just for that shot um, and the roof line above it. Uh, and then uh, basically hide the fact that there was no trees or anything out the window. We were we had a day backing out there um, but we weren't planning to do night scenes out on the porch. Um, but luckily, our camera angle doesn't really look out the porch. It looks into the, the set. So um, we were able to just use the existing 
the paper lantern scene put up. The only tricky thing is they're supposed to, there are also tiki torches in the scene. And it's just a question of where to put a paper lantern that's not going to line up with the tiki torch and catch on fire. The only thing I did was I switched around some of the colored balls. Like I, you know, if there was too many red balls near the actors' faces and their faces were going too red, I, I put like one of the blue paper lanterns instead. And that sort of shifted the color away from the, the redness of it. But it was more or less lit by the production designer and the set decorator. It's nice to have someone do your work for you yes. <laughs> on occasion. You know, we were talking uh, before about contrasts and building contrasts in between scenes and such. And I thought there was a really beautiful example in episode seven where we go from this spare controlled gallery of modern, modern art into this cluttered vintage downtown bar where uh, there's, a, and there's a great performance by Rufus Sewell in there as artist uh, Declan Howell. And, uh, you know, Midge is trying to get him to sell a painting to her and her, her boyfriend. Tell me a little bit about those two spaces, and especially that bar. It's a fantastic place. Well, that was an episode that Eric Marnier shot. Oh, so, I see. So it's, it wasn't mine. I visited the set when they did the uh, art gallery scene. Mm. It was That was shot above on a second floor on Montague Street up in Brooklyn Heights. And it was in the middle of summer. It was incredibly hot on the set. The only place they could run an air conditioning hose got covered up with a giant modernist painting. So in the wide shots, they couldn't even pump in air conditioning into the room. So it was it was the most stuffy, hot, you know, smoke-filled room you can imagine. It was, I, I walked in, I felt like it was difficult to breathe. And I was just visiting everyone. I was working hours and hours in this space. So I felt sorry for them. But it was, that was a tough location. And then the... The bar was uh, McSorley's Ale House over by the Cooper Union building, which is an old, beautiful old bar with sawdust on the floor and, and stuff. And there, the problem Eric ran into is that Declan Howell gets up on the bar counter and his head is practically touching the ceiling of the of the bar. So there's no place to rig lights. You know, it more or less is lit by the bar lighting. He's actually higher than the lights hanging over the bar counter. So... So he's basically lit by the practicals that are dangling from the ceiling um, and the sconces that are on the wall uh, with just whatever light he could cheat when, when they get on closer. But it was a very difficult space to light. How do you feel when you walking onto the set of an episode that uh, you're not shooting? You're, you're, you're the visitor on your own show. How does that, what's that feeling like? Well, it's, it's fun. To, <laughs> it's fun not to be the pressure of not shooting, but but also I'm always a bit envious because every episode has such amazing costumes and locations, and the ones I don't shoot, I don't get to shoot those costumes and locations. There was a, a beautiful set that first season had built, which was a gypsy fortune teller's uh, apartment, and uh, it was a great kind of Victorian, old-world, tiny apartment with with uh, lamp fixtures and very moody, and, and I never got to shoot it in the first season, um, Eric, they always fell into Eric's episodes and I would keep seeing that set and going, I wish I could shoot that set, but I never got to. Then the very last opening shot of the final episode of the second season, they go back to that location and I got to, or that, lo that set, they recreated that set and I got to light it for the first time, <laughs> but it was, it's a beautiful set and I was happy to finally work on it. But that's what happens is often I I was like, oh, wow, they get to shoot in McSorley's Ale House. Or they shot in uh, episode three in a uh, Brooklyn bank building, this giant, beautiful old bank that is was literally 100 yards from my apartment in New York. I walk by it every day. It's closed to the public. It's It's been closed for years. Um, 
So uh, it's basically an abandoned bank building. Um, I've always wondered what it was like on the inside. And I could only, I never got to visit this, them while they were shooting. So I never got to see the inside except in dailies. But it's a fantastic location. And I was very uh, sad that I didn't get to shoot it. Well, speaking of stress, you know, we were exchanging some emails uh, when you were uh, working on uh, season two. And I follow you on Facebook. And you post all these wonderful photos that you were taking throughout the entire production. And that's well, your stress reliever. Yes, in a lot of not. I want to say not photos of the production. They're photos of New York uh, yeah. on my spare time. Um, yeah, it's uh, you know I'm I'm out there alone, you know, away from my family and friends. And the New York is such a photographable city that that my recreation was just to take a very long walk somewhere with a camera, you know, pick a spot, some often by where the subway lines lead. Like uh, I have a Sunday afternoon free, and I'll, I'll say oh, I can get over to. Uh, uh, you know, Queens, uh, Flushing Meadows, the, where the World's Fair was, and take pictures of the Unisphere at sunset. If I get on the train right now, and I'll just grab my camera and run there, or, or I'll I'll go over to uh, Staten Island, or I'll go over to uh, Coney Island, or you know, just to explore New York with a camera. It's just it's just great because New York is very interesting because it's this combination of architecture, this East Coast coastal weather fronts that would move in. So these amazing cloud formations and storms constantly f- moving over these buildings. And then there's people. So if you're a people photographer, it's a great city. If you're an architectural photographer, it's a great city. And if you like to photograph nature and weather and, and things, it's a great city. So it all comes together in one location. It's, it's, it's hard to take a bad picture in that city. You know, let's talk a little bit about um, post-production and uh, the final color work that was done, I guess, at Light Iron. Steve Bodner is mm-hmm. a colorist. Tell me about that process and and what what kinds of things were they looking for to adjust or accentuate in that in that process? The first thing in, that I had to deal with in the pilot was the fact that we we're finishing in HDR and in UHD. So we shoot 3.2K ProRes on the Alexas, and then we bump it up to 3.8K UHD, uh, and then we do an HDR version. And I had never done an HDR show before. Uh, so we look at the HDR version in the test, and I, I see some of the HDR version in the in the final coloring. Um, but generally, the show is shot for the the SDR version. But things are always a bit sharper in 4K than than they look. It's it's weird because after years of shooting HD and seeing things on an HD monitor on the set, and that was like the best it ever looks because it's uncompressed. It's right off the camera. Now I go into post and I see it bumped up to UHD, and it actually looks sharper and and punchier in post than it does on the set, even though we have these great OLED monitors at the dit cart. So it's a weird mental thing to see something actually get sharper in post rather than get softer. But then I've also watched a show broadcast and streaming and streaming with the compression X like a filter too. So it gets softer again through streaming. So it's it's interesting. There's so many different levels of the look of the show, depending on whether you're looking at it live on the set and in post and in UHD and then and then streaming later. It's just it's subtle, but they're, they're, it's never quite the same. They're all a little bit different. We have a basic LUT for the show, you know, and uh, our our my DIT will do some scene shot to shot correction to match cameras or or make adjustments for a location. Uh, if it's too overcast or too smoky, he'll he'll tweak it and then put those notes in with his with our dailies. So the dailies colorist uh, gets our dailies down right. 
And then uh, Steve has been doing the show since the pilot, so he's sort of got the look dialed down. Since the show is very saturated, uh, for the most part, there's just things that have to be adjusted sometimes when things get oversaturated, like red lipstick can get too weird if it in Rec 709. You have, we have to actually isolate the lips and then bring it back down again if it gets too red. Sometimes in the Catskills, we had a lot of bad weather, but I wanted everything to look sunny, so I would sometimes take the gray sky and put a little blue into it, so it just... I had some blueness in the sky even when it got overcast. Things like that Steve could help me a lot with. And of course, matching smoke levels on between cameras and other things that he could help me with. When we do these very elaborate camera moves and sometimes I can't flag a light as much as I'd like or I can't darken a wall as much as I like and then Steve will help me out there too. So we, we I sit in with him and he does basically a pass on his own and then he'll show me his correction and then I'll do a pass with him and then he shows that pass to Dan and Amy and they'll do their own adjustments if they want to uh after that so it's it's worked out pretty well and, and when I come back to LA usually they're still finishing the last three or four episodes so I'll do a, a live session with Steve through a remote at Light Iron LA with him out in New York okay, well I think that kind of wraps up the questions I have for you today right. <laughs> it's been a really great conversation is there something you want to pass on to our listeners you know, is there something they should be looking for while watching the show? Something you you hope they enjoy? I just hope everyone you know has a sense of fun. I think uh, it's hard to pin down exactly my approach. I I feel like it's natural, but it everyone notes the colors, which comes out of the costumes mostly. Uh, I think there's a kind of romanticism that creeps in that maybe is in my nature. From Amy and I have a love of old movies and musicals and things, and I often on set we're often talking about classic Technicolor films and things. And I, it's not that I'm trying to light the show like that, but this feeling of glamour uh, that you see in old advertisements and magazines and movies and and stuff in the past sort of creeps into your soul while you're shooting. Uh, and I think uh, I hope people sort of catch that, you know, that that there's a kind of love for the time period and and love for cinema the period and and other things that just sort of all come together when we're making the show this has been the american cinematographer podcast thanks for listening you can find more podcasts blogs and exclusive asc content by logging onto the asc.com this podcast has been brought to you by the american society of cinematographers a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.